This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. The Beatles made their American debut on The Ed Sullivan Show in February of 1964. This will come as a surprise to few people. But what did come as a surprise to me, at least, was the fact that shortly after that performance, they flew to Miami for a nine-day stay that included two more performances on The Ed Sullivan Show filmed at the Deauville Hotel in Miami. While they were in Miami, the Beatles experienced their first real taste of the kind of stardom that was rushing toward them and what might be their last taste of what life is like for everyday folks, at least those here in the United States. Between that stint in Miami and a return trip to Florida later that year for a show at the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville, which turned out to be the first ever racially integrated stadium concert in the southeastern United States, the Beatles spent more time in Florida than anywhere else in North America during that time in their career. There's a new book that provides an intimate account of that time and how it affected the four of them and how they affected the people around them and the culture around them. Good Day Sunshine State, How the Beatles Rocked Florida, is the sixth nonfiction book by my guest today, Bob Keeling. Keeling's earlier books include Elvis Ignited, The Rise of an Icon in Florida, and Kerouac in Florida, Where the Road Ends. He was also a reporter at WESH Channel 2 in Orlando for 25 years before retiring from TV News in 2017. I spoke with him about his new book yesterday. Let's hear that now. Bob Keeling, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. So why did you decide to write this book? For a number of reasons, but, you know, the main one is that I'm the youngest of six kids, and my sister, as I was growing up, had all the original Beatles vinyl, you know, Revolver, Hard Day's Night. So while, you know, some of the other kids are listening to more bubblegum kind of stuff, I'm listening to the, you know, hardcore classic Beatles stuff, even as far back as the very early 70s. So that kind of got me going. And then as I did the research, I realized the Beatles spent more time in Florida in that watershed year, 64, than anywhere else in North America. And I knew there was a story there. Were you at all familiar with what happened with the Beatles in Florida during that time? Or did you have to uncover everything that's basically in this book, you know, from scratch? No, I knew about them going down and appearing uh, live on Ed Sullivan at the Deauville Hotel. Um, And I was also aware that the Beatles had spent some time in Key West. Uh, Actually, you know, significant time. But, um, yeah, a lot of it is I was lucky enough to to do more than 30 new primary source interviews. And I also got into the Hard Rock Collection where they had some artwork, some letters, including a four-page letter from Paul McCartney to their bodyguard down here, the Flagler College Civil Rights Collection. The more you dug, it was just like peeling back layers of the onion. And um, there was a lot there. Hmm. We'll get to the bodyguard in a little bit because I definitely want to bring him up. But So I had no idea that the Beatles played a second Ed Sullivan show in Miami one week after New York City. So that was completely new to me. They technically played two shows. And what I did is I actually, after when I got up to that part in your book, I went online and I found that show. I was able to watch. So, you know, here I am in your book kind of living through the behind the scenes. And so then I watched the actual show online. And what really struck me, and this sort of is a theme in your book, is the whole rest of the show seemed like it had both feet in the 50s. You know, the other acts, the comedians, Mitzi Gaynor doing her song and dance number, the commercials. And then the Beatles were up there and they were almost like – aliens in, you know, a whole different time and place in the world. So it was like the whole show was stuck in the 50s, except the Beatles were in the 60s. And that was in Florida. And that just really struck me as interesting. 
Yeah, and, and, you know, you look at Sullivan himself, you know, kind of dour with the slick back hair. But he was a pretty hip guy. And and he knew that these cutting edge, you know, groups like the Beatles who were who were rising in popularity would mean better ratings. But yet at the same time, um, one of the one of the fun stories I enjoy when you're talking about it like that is is Orlando's former poet laureate who back way back in the day, you know, was just a, a young you know, girl of 11 or 12, and she and her brothers didn't want to watch the Beatles. They wanted to watch Disney. And it was because they regarded the Sullivan show as square and, and, and their parents actually made them watch it. And then she sees the Beatles and has this transformational experience. But yeah, you know, Sullivan, it, it, it was unusual, but I tell you what, his ratings, you know, you look at what the Beatles did, 70 million people, that's right up there in the rarefied air with, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies at the time. <laughs> so, yeah, it was stuck in the 50s, but here come the Beatles. Uh, and, and, you know, the rest is history. Absolutely. So I've never necessarily been a huge Beatles fan. I totally appreciate their music, their musicianship, you know, the, the impact they had on the culture. But because I was never a huge fan, I never put together the timing of when they came in 1964 and everything that was going on in the United States. That was literally right after President Kennedy had been assassinated. And they kind of came in with this, this flash of energy in a culture that was really down at the time, right? Oh, without a doubt. And I can tell you, I was so fortunate to interview the entire Life magazine team, including the reporter Gail Cameron, who you know convinced the Beatles to get in that swimming pool to take that iconic picture for Life magazine. And if you, got, if you haven't seen it, if you're listening, you haven't seen it, just Google it. It's, it's this iconic picture of these four bobbing heads in the pool. And... Um, Gail was so interesting on that whole JFK point because she had gotten to know JFK and Jackie very well. In fact, she told me about hanging out at the Kennedy compound in Hyannis as the election results from 1960 were coming in. There weren't a whole bunch of media and satellite trucks. and It was just her and Jackie hanging out. So, you know, she was sort of like an America, except but at a very close range, where, you know, she was right there in the front row seat to Camelot. And then just to know what it was like and, and, and to experience that assassination and what it meant to the country and just being in this fog for several weeks, you know, with the funeral and with uh, just the, the profound sadness. So, you know, knowing what she knew and how she'd been there, when she talked about how hearing the Beatles for the first time really was like giving America permission to smile again. You know, it's about a month after the assassination. You really sit up and take notice because she was there and she would know. You know, uh, another thing you just by bringing up the Life magazine photo shoot, I thought it was really interesting and really sort of exemplified how quickly they rose to fame. Um, two years to the day before that Life magazine photo shoot, they were playing their first nighttime gig at the place in Liverpool. So in two years, yeah, they, went the from playing their, yep. they, they went from playing their first nighttime gig to being shot for Life magazine in Miami in two years. Isn't that amazing? And, and I also say that I really think that trip to Miami is where the Beatles first fell in love with America because these guys are from workaday, industrial England. It's cloudy and, you know, pasty skin, young guys in their 20s. All of a sudden, you know, everything opens up like a flower in there. 
you know, beaches. And like Paul said, we'd never seen palm trees before, you know, let alone the suntan, curvaceous, beautiful women in South Florida. So uh, it just the effects of coming to the Sunshine State for the first time on the Beatles cannot be overstated. One of the things I really enjoyed about your book is you have a lot of really deep, you know, there's so much detail in it that it's great storytelling because there are so many little tiny details and you show what's happening through, you know, the stories of of not famous people. And and now I want to bring back in um, their bodyguard, quote unquote, Sergeant Buddy Dresner. Tell us about him and, you know, who he was and the role he ended up playing with the Beatles while they were in uh, Miami. Well, thanks for the thanks for the kind words, and I'll tell you, Buddy was just like somebody right out of Central Casting. At the time, you know, he was the overnight sergeant in uh, Miami Beach Police Department, and you know, the, the, there's one morning he gets this knocking on the door, and he's what the hell, you know, he's just gone to sleep like a vampire, and it's one of the policemen telling him the captain wants to see you and he is not in a good mood because for him it's the middle of the night talks to the captain and the captain says okay you've been chosen to, to to guard the beetles and he's like what the hell is beetles what are you talking about you know he'd never even heard of them but he had this wonderful touch where he could be the father figure he could be the authoritarian but he, he also had a good sense of humor and he even connected with people like john you know who could be a little bit you know difficult and so Buddy was their father, their, you know, uncle, their big brother, and he was their security during the whole stretch of nine days that they were in South Florida. And he was with them all the time. In fact, he was, he finally decided he was spending so little time at home, he ended up rooming with George at the uh, Deauville. So he was a fantastic source to have. And he actually ended up sort of saving George from having to bunk with uh, radio DJ Murray the K, right? The motor mouth guy who decides, <laughs> okay, these guys are ratings gold for my show, so I'm just going to insinuate myself on down to Miami. And, yeah, so 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 Buddy rooms with George and, and you know, everything is still going on. And it's just uh, – I, I do want to say that the reason I was able to get access to a very long videotaped interview with Buddy is because of his son, Barry, who has this wonderful website called BuddyandTheBeatles.com where he's lovingly brought all of this ephemera from his father's connections with the Beatles. So it's all right there. They even had dinner at Buddy's house, right? His family, the the neighbor, everybody was in, you know, it was a big secret with his kids. And then they went over and just had a normal, I think it was roast beef and, and potatoes meal with a family in the United States. And it was like the closest, maybe the last time they were going to get to be normal people in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that was just, to me, that was just so compelling to think, you know, they'd been basically like prisoners in their hotel rooms. And then finally, after the Sullivan show's gone off successfully, Buddy's like, all right, now I can take him home and tell the family. He had three young kids, including two young daughters, who he had to, you know, tell a little white lie to. So their house wouldn't be swarmed with people. So that night, his daughters found out what he had been doing on this secret assignment. And so the whole family got to meet the Beatles. And uh, there was one special guest, one little neighbor girl who, who was there, too. And that was like this lightning bolt of synchronicity because she went on to be a very notable figure. And I don't know if you want to go down that road or not, but that was uh, 
that was a pretty amazing happenstance. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we could just say it in one sentence. She was the judge that presided over the George Zimmerman trial when Trayvon Martin was killed, right? That would be right. And she called me at home one day and told me of her connection. And I'm like, Your Honor. And she goes, Oh, call me Debbie. I'm like, uh, Okay. <laughs> and she goes, uh, She tells me about being the Dresner's neighbor. And I couldn't believe it because I said, you're talking yourself into a chapter I've already written. <laughs> and I had a couple of points of synchronicity like that, you know, where you just have these seemingly unconnected, disconnected events, and all of a sudden it comes together, and you're just like, wow, okay, that's some kind of sign from beyond that, you know, we're going in the right direction. I'd like to take a moment to reintroduce my guest. Bob Keeling is author of six nonfiction books, including his latest, Good Day Sunshine, How the Beatles Rocked Florida. Keeling also spent 25 years as a reporter at WESH Channel 2 in Orlando before retiring from TV news in 2017. If you'd like to engage with the show about today's topic or any of our episodes, just use WGCU social media. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram. So not only did they arrive in the wake of the assassination of President Kennedy, but there was also just so much going on in the U.S. around race relations and segregation and civil rights at that time. And the Beatles kind of used their collective voice to weigh in on those issues in a way that that may have moved the needle a little bit. Would that be a fair way to put it? Yeah. And when you're talking about the USA, you could actually say, too, I mean, it was Florida. You know, Florida was quite the potboiler that year. You know, there was young Cassius Clay going for the World Champ Boxing Championship in Miami, and the Beatles went and met him. And Dr. King is all over the state of Florida, Orlando, Tallahassee, St. Augustine, as there's the nonviolent protest for equal rights going on up in St. Augustine. And he goes there, and unfortunately, there was, there was some violence against the protesters. And to put a spotlight on the point, he actually went to this um, resort, the Monson Motor Lodge in St. Augustine, just wanted to go in and have lunch with his white friends. And they said, no, you know, you would need to be back around the back, you know, where the servants, you know, that you got to go through the back door. And he wanted to be a front door person. And um, as part of that, after he was arrested, he was taken up to Duval County in Jacksonville to be held in solitary confinement. And as that was going on, there were these federal court hearings with this incredibly important federal judge, Brian Simpson, who, who made very precedent-setting rulings in favor of the nonviolent protesters. And as far as the Beatles were concerned, as they were headed back for their first North American tour with a stop in Jacksonville that fall, that summer and fall, they had a writer in their contract that said the artist will not be required to play in front of segregated audiences. And they stood behind that and said, nope. You know, we just don't get why you would separate people like that. And, and we're not going to do that. And anybody who wanted to bring them to the States had to sign on the dotted line that they would not have segregated shows. And that show they played in Jacksonville at the Gator Bowl was the first integrated stadium concert in the Southeast U.S. ever, right? Correct. And because of these hearings that I was telling you about that included testimony from Dr. King, you start to see the dominoes falling and why the show in Jacksonville came off as well as it did. You know, the only issue was a, um, 
a certain storm named Dora decided <laughs> she was going to come plowing through right about the same time as the concert. So it wasn't about equality. It was more about uh, meteorology. That Dora uh, coming through, I mean, it made landfall just a few days before their show, and that's why they wound up in the Keys, right? Or was the Keys the plan all yeah, along? Right. Do you know, or was that a, a way to avoid the storm in case they could play the show that they wound up playing? Yeah, it was. It was. Um, they diverted there just to get away and to be far enough away. But it also gave them at least some measure of peace. They, you know, were flew all night from Montreal, landed in Key West in the middle of the night. But the following day, you know, they weren't swarmed yet, so they were able to stay at the Key Western Resort and actually have at least some hours of peace before everybody on the mainland heard that the Beatles were about as far south in Florida as they could be. And then the convoy starts down US-1 for uh, Key West, and it was a pretty eventful time for them there. Another thing that you highlight in the book is, you know, the influence they had on musicians, one of which was Tom Petty, who lived in Gainesville. And the interesting tidbit that I found uh, that you wrote about was how uh, apparently his parents wouldn't let him go to the Jacksonville show because of Dora because the weather was too bad. Exactly. And I was so fortunate to interview a number of musicians from there, uh, Bernie and Tom Ledden. Bernie was one of the co-founders of the Eagles. You know, they grew up in Gainesville. Tom Ledden was in Mud Crutch with Tom Petty. And in fact, as we're doing this interview, I, I just learned that Tom, Tom Ledden has passed away at the age of 70. And he was a wonderful source because he talked about, you know, once Tom Petty saw the Beatles, that was it. I mean, he, he was just absolutely a huge fan. So they were in a garage group together, and their thing was they used to deconstruct the Beatles songs and learn how to play them for parties and things. And Tom Ledden also told me about the conflict between Petty and his dad that got so severe, you know, in the late 60s. He said that at one point during one of their arguments, uh, Petty's dad chased him out of the house at gunpoint. And that really shocked me. But um, Tom Tom Ledden was a wonderful source, and I, I was sure sorry to hear that he passed away. Uh, hmm. But a number have since uh, I've started down the road on this book. Almost a third of the people I've interviewed now are no longer with us. You know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed that summer while the Beatles were in the United States. And since they were speaking up to some degree about these issues, do you think they, you know, their voices, because they were so blowing up in our culture, might have put a little bit of weight on the scale for that? I think there's no doubt about it. And I think to them, the idea of segregating, you know, African-Americans was just ridiculous. I mean, they, they had black artists on the tour with them, you know, the Exciters, you know, being one of them. And, um, you know, when they were in Detroit, they said they talked about all the Motown artists that they loved, like uh, Marvin Gaye and Martha and the Vandellas. And, you know, in, in, you have to remember the context, too. A lot of American artists of color actually went to Europe much earlier on in the Civil Rights Act because they were treated better. And, um, so European artists coming here didn't quite get this notion that you would segregate them and just didn't make sense to them. And the Beatles certainly spoke right up. You know, they spoke their convictions very clearly. Another detail um, in, that I found interesting in terms of Florida's role in the Beatles was that um, it just so happens that John Lennon was at Disney World in a hotel room in a Disney resort when he finally was the fourth Beatle to sign the paperwork that officially dissolved the band. 
Isn't that amazing? That's where it happened. I mean, technically, at least, the Beatles were broken up at Disney in <laughs> December of 74. And it, we're so fortunate that John was with, you know, his companion, May Pang, at the time. And um, she photographed all of it as he's kind of sitting there. And she photographed his final signature as a Beatle, technically, again. And uh, so you have this wonderful account. And in fact, there's a documentary about her relationship with him coming out called The Lost Weekend. And I'm sure a lot of it will have to do with Florida. And, you know, John and Yoko, at the time of his murder, had bought a house in Palm Beach and were renovating it. So people got to know him there. So he was a part-time Florida man at the time of his uh, sad and untimely death. You know, and despite the history of the Beatles in Florida, from from reading your book, it seems like, you know, just except for one little place down in the Keys, there's really no record of it. There's no markers. There's no attempt to, you know, use it for tourism marketing purposes or anything like that. Yeah. And one really unfortunate episode was what happened with the Deauville Hotel. Yeah, yeah. Where the Beatles appeared, you know, live and... I mean, just the extraordinary difficulty of bringing off that show, given the fact that it was a working beach resort, is pretty amazing. And it was just an absolute tragedy that they could not save that extremely historic hotel. I mean, I was quoted in the New York Times and, you know, there was a lot of back and forth. But, yeah, it was imploded about a year ago. So um, if anybody's listening down in Key West, that little cabana, where they stayed, which is now the Hyatt Windward Point, you know, the condos down there. That should be a, you know, Florida Heritage Site. That should be a landmark. Uh, last question about the book. Uh, where'd the cover photo come from? That's an Associated Press photo uh, for when they first got to uh, Miami Beach. And you see their faces. If, you, if you've seen the picture, I mean, especially like George, he looks like just such a happy tourist. He's got his camera with him. He's all of 20 years old. And if you knew George back in that period, he wasn't really a guy that smiled a whole lot like that. But, yeah, that, I think that, that picture just absolutely suits the book. And uh, the Beatles had a lot of great photographers following them at the time, including Harry Benson, um, who's still alive. You know, he's in his 90s in England, and uh, they got some great shots. And last question is, um, what is your next interesting slice of Florida history story that you're going to be working on? Because I have a feeling that this is not the end. No, I hope not. But I tell you what, um, something I was really moved by, which doesn't have to do with my normal subject matter, is uh, this wonderful documentary that came out called The Path of the Panther. And I don't know if you've seen it, but it's this brilliant photographer who got some of the most amazing footage of Florida Panthers in the wild that I have ever seen. And I've thought strongly about wanting to help advocate for their preservation. Um, they're like ghosts and, uh, you know, future generations need to know that those majestic cats are still among us. I'm pretty sure you're talking about Carlton Ward Jr. Who's been on this That's show. That's exactly who I'm talking He's about. He's been on this show a couple times moment. over the years. Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant work. Brilliant. Well, I appreciate your time, but we are unfortunately out of it. Bob Keeling is author of Good Day Sunshine, How the Beatles Rocked Florida. Bob, thank you so much for joining us and giving us a bit of this cool slice of Florida history. Absolutely, Mike. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on.
Bob is author of six nonfiction books in all, including Elvis Ignited, The Rise of an Icon in Florida, and Kerouac in Florida, Where the Road Ends. He was also a reporter at WESH Channel 2 in Orlando for 25 years before retiring from TV news in 2017. If you missed any of the show today, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.